So the, of course, the most important thing in this work is that it's relevant. So that whenever we take up a model, like this teaching on the three refuges, we can't connect it with our own experience. It's not going to be that useful for us. I mean, it may be useful later, so it's okay if it doesn't make sense or isn't uh, useful math sort of illuminate the actual way it is in the mind, the way that it, our experience is now. But that's really the work of our class is to study, to hear the talk, to study, talk with their friends, and to... Um, you know, try it out in a sense where we remember the teachings and we notice the effect it has on the mind. Like, is are things more clear when we remember the teaching? Is the present moment, the way that it is, more clear? Does it make sense? Oh, well, this is how it is. This is how it works. And in particular, you know... Um, as people interested in the teachings of the Buddha, in particular, we're interested in the defining issue. You know, the Buddha defined it as you know, suffering and the end of suffering. That's what it's all about. It all comes down to that. So then, the work we're doing with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, learning these concepts, trying them out, the whole, you know, the way that we evaluate the work we're doing is does it inform the mind about dukkha and the cessation of dukkha in our actual experiencing through life, moving through life does it have anything to say about that does it reveal anything about it and like anything like any uh, skill or whatever that we'd be learning we have to keep applying ourselves to it like it's not enough to, like in the guided sit tonight, to hear my encouragement to sort of reflect, to sort of look and see, is there this, is there something that might relate to the words Mark's using around space of the mind? You know, the big empty space of the mind. Like what, what might that be pointing to in my experience? And it's not like we look once and say, ah, I don't really get it. But like we have to look over and over again. I mean, we've got that three minutes. <laughs> so we just keep like looking. Same with Dhamma. You know, it's like, do we see that sort of, can we see that the phenomena, the conditions, can we see that as a river, you know, like a movement? Sound is a movement. Sensation is a movement. Sound, uh, thought rather is a movement. An endlessly flowing on, lawful, lawfully moving impersonally moving because that's the Buddha knowing Dhamma so we just keep looking you know I find uh, the hard thing in practice is to maintain the reflection you know it's the lack of uh, wholeheartedness or sincerity it's like you know I consider myself pretty sincere but when I look at my actual practice it'd be more accurate to call it dabbling. You know, because how easy other things seem more important. You know, like remembering something and wanting to think through it. Something, I think in the earlier sit, the 7 to 7.25 sit, something came up 
And I just calmed myself like I didn't want to put it down. Like I wanted to get to some conclusion of I don't remember what I was thinking about. But it wasn't that important. It was just interesting how it's like a little disturbing to sort of release the mind's grip on that particular thought pattern without having any resolution. You know, I haven't figured out like what I'm going to do about this thing. It's probably, you know, I don't know, planning out on trying to post lunch tomorrow or something like that. You know, or just organizing details in my mind. So, and to have, uh, you know, to really use our course um, to see, like, is it, are these teachings useful in that way? Remember, the Buddhist teachings are a raft. They're a skillful means. They're not some absolute truth. They're, it's medicine, and if we get, you know, understand the medicine correctly, like get the right medicine, really, then, and then we have to take it. It's not enough to have it. We have to take it. And the taking the medicine is where we're taking the concepts. Dhamma, one of the ways that word is used, is the teachings of the Buddha. So we have to learn the teachings well enough. And then we have to take it, which is that we sort of raise those concepts in the mind. We pick them up and we chew on them. We kind of think them. And we notice how experience is under the influence of those concepts, like Buddha knowing Dhamma. Like, does it, does it change anything? Does it have an effect? What kind of an effect does it have? And just to be honest about it. And then, you know, it, and then once we understand this, it, a lot of what the whole tradition starts to make more sense of why is there such a big emphasis on the Buddha's awakening you know we have to I mean everything about the tradition of practice should be pragmatic or we should put it on the shelf in our mind because it may be useful later but we shouldn't hold on to anything because we think we should the whole point the whole tradition is about skillful means like it should have an effect around this very important thing of suffering and the end of suffering. It's the only point. It's not like something to decorate our life with. You know, collecting interesting philosophical ideas or, you know, developing interesting uh, rituals in my life, sitting every day, how I wear my shawl and whatever, how I bow to the Buddha. Or, because it, you know, it's just, it makes, us, makes my life feel more meaningful. So I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. It's, it could be quite harmless. But it's, if it's not about illuminating our experience and how there is suffering and how at times there is not suffering, then it's, you know, it's not really about uh, you know, what the practice was originally about, which is freedom. So we, you know, the Buddha as a symbol exists, you know, that awakening is possible. And one of the things that helps us be sincere instead of dabblers and to kind of use the time that we have in our lives to reflect, to sort of see how these concepts, these teachings can change things. One of the things that makes us sincere is 
having some faith that it's possible to be free. That liberation, or whatever word you'd like to use, happiness, peace, that it's really available for human beings. Because it's easy, I see this in, uh, uh, just even among teachers, it, there's, it seems like this inevitable, because, because you know, we're, we're skeptical, and, uh, and we should be skeptical about anything that sounds a little magical, Nibbana can sound a little bit like heaven. You know, awakening can sound like heaven, getting to this perfect utopia where we have everything we want, and something like that. A really wonderful resting place for myself where I can be for a long time free from the problems, like a transcendence from the messiness of the world. And, uh, and then, because, because maybe we're sophisticated, then we realize, oh, you know, I'm just playing that game again. And then we want to dismiss the whole thing, kind of swing the other way, like, well, there's nothing. The practice is just, as, basically, it's just a really effective stress reduction mechanism. And I can handle this difficult thing of being a human being better by doing the practice. But we sort of let go of anything that, uh, that points to like a, a more radical freedom. Uh, an experience where life is free of stress. You know, that's pretty radical for a living being to sort of hold that as a possibility or to be inspired by... Like, because it's so contradictory, you know, it's so obvious as a living being that things are stressful. I mean, having a body is stressful, having relationships is stressful, dealing with birth and death is stressful, needing to feed the body every day or almost every day is stressful, you know, having to eliminate our waste is stressful. I mean, it's like, and just the co competition thing, getting enough, feeling safe is stressful. So, the fact that somebody like the Buddha or others, you know, might say um, there is freedom from the stress that usually arises for living beings, there's freedom from that, seems pretty uh, outrageous. So, that to the degree we uh, can mine our own experiences, you know, sort of extract from our actual experiences like a sense of that possibility moments of feeling really free then then we can uh, generate the kind of uh, persistence and wholeheartedness and sincerity and then we start to use more and more of our day you know we go from being superficial and more of a dabbler to somebody who's just, it's the most important thing. If you read that article by Nana Pramika Tara that I sent out a while back, you might have seen, you know, in there, buried in there, maybe near the end of that article, he has uh, something that comes out of the tradition, sort of four levels of commitment. And again, don't, 
not so much to be used as a way of judging ourselves, like, oh, I'm only there, but just to understand kind of human nature and, and just to be honest with ourselves, like, when we're here and when we're there. So you can think of this in terms of these teachings that wherever we are, we're in the process of receiving and learning and understanding and having them accessible to the mind to sort of pull out and use, reflect on. So the first stage, he says something like homage by prostration. And maybe a way to understand this is, and not just in terms of Buddhism, but just generally in life, things you get inspired by and you know, feel that it's worthy of respect, that person is worthy of respect, or the work that Doctors Without Borders does in the world, that's worthy of respect. And we have this feeling, like, not that it's sort of culturally appropriate, that, that we'd be okay getting on our knees and bowing down to that organization because we're so happy. We feel so, uh, we actually feel inspired by what they do. Or, you know, what the teachings of the Buddha are. We feel inspired. It's it's that sense of what's sacred, you know, and uh, maybe even just seeing beauty does that to you sometimes, where you happen to be someplace that takes your breath away. And uh, the sense of humility comes up, and gratitude, and we feel like prostrating. Not that we actually will, but that's that sense. You know, that's why that there's so much of that in Buddhism and, and a lot of religious spiritual traditions, because... This is really the initial stage of a human being kind of opening his or her eyes is we're moved, we're in awe of life. We're in awe of like how little we know, how mysterious it actually is. We've broken enough of our sort of superficial, arrogant sense that we know what's going on. That's fallen away and we're left with a sense of awe and humility and it feels like we want to get on our knees and say, wow, I don't know what this is, but it's amazing. And, you know, often in that stage there's some fear, sort of this funny push and pull between fear and attraction. Like we can't leave it alone, but we, hey, we're a little frightened by what it's all about and where it's going to go. So this stage he calls homage by prostration. So you might notice, like, maybe that's your relationship with your spiritual path or with your, your relationship with the teachings of the Buddha or, or other places in your life as well. And then the next stage he calls the acceptance of discipleship. So we've gone, we've sort of become familiar enough that we're not in that sort of stage of being blinded. Remember that movie about Moses with Charleston Heston? I'm sure I've seen it at least 10 or 15 times. I think we saw it every year as a kid. And, you know, there's that scene with him up on the mountain and, you know, God's thunderous voice and forget exactly all the different elements, you know, the burning bush and, the, and just this sort of like this sense, you know, like he didn't know what the hell was going on. But, but was very moved, you know, by the whole thing and uh, humbled by it enough that, you know, in the movie his hair turns gray when he's up there, comes back with gray hair. So it's like a life-altering event. And then, you know, he becomes the disciple. I mean, he, he slowly figures it out 
you know, what this thing, you know, God is, and, like, it's best just to submit, even if we don't understand. And this is the discipleship, you know, where we're applying ourselves to whatever experience, whatever we have, you know, like the teachings of the Buddha. They inspired us, we were in awe of them, kind of blew our minds away, just sort of the initial superficial understanding, because it sort of resonates with our experience, but we don't really understand how it all works yet. But then we we get stable enough, we start to sort of systematically learn, you know, and traditionally it would mean you would systematically memorize the teachings so that they would be easy to bring to mind. So it's not about memorizing to impress others, but especially in Theravada, well, I think all traditions of Buddhism, there's a real emphasis on memorization, precisely so that as we're living our life, we can bring it to mind and sort of let it have its effect, reflect on it and let it have its effect. So this is the training. We're applying ourselves, we're learning. And then that leads to sort of more experience because the more we're applying and learning, then we, you know, if it actually is a path, is a set of teachings that illuminate our world, and in particular illuminate this dynamic of suffering and non-suffering, then it's going to be pretty inspiring if it actually does that because we're going to get better at non-suffering. And so then, you know, it becomes our, this is the third stage, it becomes our guiding ideal. So it's not just, it's like, uh, it's sort of taken up residence in our heart. It's what is most important. It's risen, and now it's more important than being cool. You know, it's more important than anything. And then the last stage is total surrender. Which means, as I understand it, at, least, at this stage, it's like everything we do, it's not like we stop being a parent or stop having a job or having friends, but everything we do is sort of has been uh, made to be um, under the influence of this, of this uh, practice, of this awakening process, of this ongoing reflection, like using the teachings it's like we use our whole life is about this now. It's not something we do. It's not something that's important. It's like who we are. I think this is pretty rare. I mean, I know, I know some teachers who I have a lot of respect for, but I, I don't think I, I've seen them in times, you know, in moments where they're not practicing. So they're not at the stage, you know, where everything in the, that they do is practice. And so I think it's useful to make that a high bar, you know, where everything is about the practice. And then, so in our small groups tonight, I forgot to mention that we'll be doing small groups tonight. This may be something you want to talk about in the small group, you know, just to reflect in an open, honest way about finding yourself different places, you know, sometimes not even in one of these four places. Like, it's just not Buddhism or the teachings of the Buddha or the possibility of awakening or even the relevance of the mind. It's just not there. It's just not, it's not relevant what the mind is or the nature of the mind. 
I'm just interested in getting some food in my stomach. You know, I had a missed lunch today, and you know, it's all I, or I just want to get into bed, or I just I desperately need some entertainment because life has been hard. And then we're just an animal at that stage. I mean, we may be a complicated animal wearing clothes, but we're just an animal. I saw something on TED today. Um, the Dawn of Sex is a book that was written. I don't know if anybody saw, read that, or read the clips of it. it came out a couple of years ago. It's really interesting. I read some excerpts of it. It just uh, anthropolog- sort of an anthropological look at sex, and uh, and one of the the ideas in that is like for human beings and a few other primates. Um, it's like the sexual organs and uh, sexual behavior doesn't make sense of purely poor reproduction. Like they look at the big mountain gorillas and uh, their sexual organs are actually a lot smaller than chimps and there's another small monkey and then humans. They're just much smaller. And uh, when gorillas mate, they mate, it's... Uh, one out of ten times, they, the mother or female gets fertilized. The egg gets fertilized in pregnancy. And for humans and these other uh, few primates, it's like one out of a thousand. So the sexual activity is a lot more about for social reasons than for reproductive reasons. And uh, so why are you looking that up? <laughs> Sex is important, I guess. Oh yeah, I, I remember it. But, you know, it's easy to get distracted. And, and we're, you know, it's like, there's a reason for that. It's like how we figure out how to be social beings together through our sexual energy that we have. It's like having sex with each other. And part of this book, too, is this this the idea of monogamy is an idea <laughs> that came out of particular social, cultural circumstances, but doesn't really fit with reality. Even at times when, on the surface, it, it seemed like it was true, they, they would argue that it was rarely ever true in human history, and in, also in these other species. Now, other species, it's very true. So it's not saying that it can't be true, but just that it isn't often true, with species that use sexuality for social reasons. But the, the, the bigger point that I was making, or the more specific point I was making, is, is just like it's not easy and we have to be forgiving about how distracted we get about this big issue of suffering and the end of suffering. And it's really, it should be a cause for crying and laughing when we realize how forgetful we are about this issue of suffering and non-suffering. Because clearly, just intellectually, it doesn't take much clarity or much intelligence to realize this is the most important thing for human beings. You know, we should be living our life to be more skillful, more awake, more wise about suffering and the end of suffering. Because by definition, this is what matters. (laughs) But... It's amazing how forgetful we can be and think other things are important. And so when you're sharing in your groups, you might want to just talk about how even the whole idea of refuge, like 
safety, ultimate safety, is so often not relevant. And just getting by is what's relevant, or just, you know, connecting with somebody, whether it's sexually connecting or free sexual connecting, you know, sort of the flirtatious, and just the energy, the enlivened, the enlivened experience we have just being around each other in that way. And it doesn't even matter if we're ever conceivably going to have sex with a person. But it's just part of being social beings, you know. It's just we're enlivened by all of this interactive stuff we do together. So that's just one thing you might want to bring up in uh, in your small groups. And then another thing that might seem relevant in the discussion too is like, what what have you found or skillful ways to bring up this whole? ritual of refuge, like the concept of refuge, to bring it up in a way, you know, it's often in like in Buddhist tradition and other traditions, there are all kinds of ritual rituals to help us remember that there is something important. You know, like this religious idea, this spiritual idea is important. So we build these big cathedrals or temples or synagogues or mosques or whatever, meditation centers. And it reminds us, you know, we decorate them, we make them big, or we make them beautiful, or we, whatever. We do things, you know, we have bells, we have beautiful chanting or music, you know, we have costumes. We do all kinds of things to make it interesting for the mind and sort of compelling, keep us coming back. So how can you use the things that you're naturally attracted to, that you naturally find pleasant and beautiful, how can we as a community, how can you personally find ways to remember what is ultimately worth remembering and not live a life of complete distraction or superficiality? Because that's one of the points of this class, you know, doing the course on the three refuges, is that we want to you know, we, we want to, whether you use the word Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha or not isn't really important, but you want to uncover what is important for you, you know, and then find some words that make it easy for you to memorize that there is actually something important in your life. It's not just about getting by until you're dead, but there's actually something you think is relevant to be doing with your life. And then find a way to remember that and then decorate that remembering so it's going to get your attention more and more often. Institutionalize it in your life. I mean, think about the things that we've institutionalized in our life. You know, on Thursday night, I have to watch Modern Family or something like that. Is it on Thursday night? Wednesday? So it's like we institutionalize a lot of it, or Monday night, I go to Common Ground. So why not institutionalize what ultimately is most important and then call it the refuges or call it whatever you want to call it and then do something with it. And especially if you make it part of your social scene, like I was saying, human beings are profoundly social. So, you know, if you're around here long enough, you'll you'll get the sense that if common ground is a cult, it's a cult of community. You know, like when you really listen to over the years in a lot of different settings what people are really attached to here they're attached to the community they're fixated on the community I think it's generally a pretty healthy thing I mean 
If you're going to be fixated or attached to something, a wholesome community is a pretty good thing. So we have this cult of community here at Common Ground, and it keeps us coming back. People come back here. I mean, this is what they tell me, and this is what I hear. They come back because they love the community. They're in love with the community. They're devoted to the community. They care about the community. They're moved by the community. You see, so whether we've been conscious of it, or probably to some degree we've been conscious of it, but a lot of it has been unconscious, but somehow we've created a really beautiful community, and it's having the effect of us gathering together around these teachings. I mean, that's the community is built on these teachings. And partly it's beautiful because of these teachings, and partly it's beautiful for all kinds of other reasons. I mean, you can have a beautiful community without the Buddhist teachings. But it's really powerful this way because people, not everybody, but people keep coming back, which is great because when we're here, we're more likely to remember these teachings, we're more likely to play with them, to reflect on them, we're more likely to see how it actually illuminates our experience, things get clearer, we become more skillful, there's less dukkha, we get inspired. And it grows, the whole process. It's, this is why, how it's a natural process. So anyway, this is another thing you could talk about in the small groups. You could reflect about how to be more conscious at uh, using all the different ways, uh, all the different means at our disposal to keep remembering what we should be remembering. So it's really like uh, hard, harder to forget. You know, we did a house blessing, uh, Kevin Freiberg and his wife Andrea and Isaac, their son, they bought a house recently and they wanted a little house blessing, so they invited some of their friends over and I came over to help and just did a little house blessing. So now one of the things we do sometimes is we do a little string ceremony and then people wear strings, you probably notice sometimes Gabe has a string around his wrist and other people might have too and it's just... You know, it's such a simple, obvious thing, but now I remember them. You know, and when I remember them, I think about, you know, what a wonderful family they are and how beautiful their intentions of living a mindful life together, a happy life together. And it's like a simple way of remembering. Some people wear mala beads around their wrists. Some people have statues in their homes. Some people have a meditation cushion. You know, so it doesn't matter how you do it. It's just to be creative and see what works. Maybe I'll leave it there. And we'll break into small groups. And we'll come back a few minutes early. I'll give you some thoughts to use to prepare for week four. Um, I'll just mention this one thing that's also from Yanapani Kutera's article that you have that's at the Buddhist Studies website Uh, and because you could use this too from this day forward thus may you know, know me so one of the things about the refuges is when we've lost the way and we've been superficial or blinded by things that aren't ultimately very important for days or weeks or years but then we re-remember oh yeah there is this thing I really care about that I think really matters then 
the, the wreckages is something that we can do again. We can start over. So from this day forth, so that you can use a phrase like that. Like when you like, okay, forget how much I screwed up my life. From this day forward, I undertake, you know, this refuge. I commit to this refuge. I prostrate to this refuge. I put at the center of my life this refuge. I totally submit to this refuge. You know, wherever you feel, however confident you are, basically. And then the other phrase, thus may you know me. And this is that community piece. So we take refuge. It's nice to do that in a social context. Even if it's just a friend knows, a teacher friend or a Dharma friend knows, thus may you know me. So like, I want you to know that I'm taking refuge. I want you to know that because I, I want you to help me remember that this, now that I have some more balance in my mind, some more clarity, this is really important to me. And I, I'm smart enough to know that I'm likely to get swept away by life soon. So I want you to help me. So traditionally they use that, you know, at the beginning of taking the refuges, you would say something like, from this day forward, from this moment forward, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Thus may you know me. So then you say that at the end. So that's like asking help, you know, in front of all of you, I take refuge. So that's also something you can talk about. And you could also go back to what we've been talking about in the earlier weeks about you know, just understanding the nature of Buddha, the awakenness or the space of the mind, the empty, luminous, pure space of the mind and what that experience is like for you and what is it like to be aware of that as you're living your life what does it what is the effect of being intuitively aware of Buddha as you're moving through life and then what is it like moving through life when you're not aware of it for that sense of open space so let's see what do you think tonight at maybe 60, so that would be 20. Why don't we count to 20 and see where we are. One, two, So maybe 19 and 20 should join together uh, so that there's four instead of two in those groups. So 19 and 20 will go in Shelley's office, and uh, 18 can be in my office. One of you can get the key in a minute. 17, 16, 15, and 14 in the community room. And uh, 13, 12, and 11 in the lobby. Um, 
outside on the benches, maybe ten and nine on the benches, and eight by the shed, and uh, seven on the white couch, and six at the table in the workshop uh, in the basement. Did I say seven in the workshop? Six in the workshop, and then five, four, three over by Alexis, two, and one. Make sense? I think everybody knows about the small groups, so I won't say any more about that. So if you're within earshot, I'll keep time. Otherwise, I'll like the timekeeper. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.